Shivani Samaya, and welcome back to the Financial Executives Podcast. Earlier this year, the Wall Street Journal reported that the SEC is considering a softening of planned rules, whilst also highlighting the proposed 1% disclosure threshold, otherwise known as a bright line test to disclose climate risks. Could the 1% threshold be more cause for concern? On this episode of the Financial Executives Podcast, we sit down with KPMG's ESG audit leader, Maura Hod, to get a better understanding of what exactly the 1% disclosure threshold could mean for auditors preparing for the SEC's final climate disclosure rule. Since ESG remains at the center of financial reporting debates, The Financial Education and Research Foundation just issued new research that focuses specifically on how organizations and finance teams are aligning themselves in preparation for the SEC's final climate disclosure rules. Maura, could you start by giving us an overview of your career background and what has led you to the career that you're in now? Sure, Shivani. So I am an audit partner out of our Boston office at KPMG. And when I came out of college, I knew that I wanted to be working on corporate social responsibility. Um, I just realized how much impact corporations had on the environment and on society around them and how many resources they had command over. And I just felt like if they could shift what they were doing by even just one degree, it could make such a positive impact on the world. So I had that in the back of my mind as I was coming out of college and um, ended up going into audit because I felt like having transparency and information resulted in accountability and really helped our capital markets come together. So doing financial statement audit for five years, I tried to make a pivot in 2010 had the opportunity to help start up KPMG's climate change and sustainability practice in the U.S. and started out by developing our assurance approach in the U.S. for U.S. market and U.S. standards, and then very quickly realized that it wasn't going to be the business opportunity that we thought it would be at the time. So I moved back into financial statement audit, spent a lot of time doing IPOs and bringing early stage life sciences companies through that process. But then in 2021, as ESG became something that everybody was talking about and really realizing how important that was for business strategy, um, was asked by the firm to lead ESG for the audit practice. So here I am today. The SEC's climate disclosures rule is expected in the coming months soon. Major news outlets have reported that the final rule may be less granular than the proposal. Can you explain to us what that means? Well, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't tell you exactly where this proposal is going to land or you know what the final rule will say. But we've been tracking all of the news outlets out there, and we have seen that the final rule may take a softer approach than the proposal. What I would want to highlight is that, you know, in practice and in the history, it's not unusual for a final rule to have some changes relative to the proposal. And as with the development of any standard, we look at the details and know that the devil is in the details. 
Through our process of reviewing the proposal, we found about 120 unique proposed disclosure requirements. And so the SEC obviously has to sift through all of those uh, disclosure requirements as they go through their process. Chair Gensler has acknowledged that these types of adjustments are normal um, after the SEC solicits feedback on the proposals and they received nearly 15,000 public comments on climate and almost 5,000 of those were unique responses. So now the staff has to align the original proposal with those responses and will make adjustments as appropriate. And in which areas might we see changes? So I think that there's two areas where we might see changes because these were two of the most commented on areas. Um, It's really too soon to tell for sure, but we did see the Wall Street Journal highlight that the SEC's proposed 1% threshold, also known as the bright line test, is an area that has a lot of focus and attention. And then the second area we talk to clients about a lot are scope three emissions. The idea of scope three is that you're trying to get information about greenhouse gases from all of the suppliers and entities in your supply chain. And there is just a lot of logistical difficulty to collect that data, determine whether it's material, have it be part of your stated emissions targets or goals, and really to be able to rely on some of the information that's coming to you because it may not be assured or it may not be consistently collected or reported by your suppliers. What is that threshold and what could an alternative look like? Well, as I mentioned, the 1% threshold is certainly an area that is up for debate in the final rule. And we often refer to it as a bright line test. So what this test does is it requires issuer companies to disclose the financial impact of climate events and transition activities on their consolidated financial statements. So your balance sheet, your profit and loss statement, and your statement of cash flows. If the aggregate impacts are 1% or more of individual line items, they would also need to disclose related costs or expenditures if the aggregate impact exceeds a 1% threshold. So it's relatively complex and it is very detailed in terms of the amount of information that is being asked for. Um, Again, it applies to any and all line items in your financial statement. So you have to go through every single one and isolate the impact that climate risk would have on those line items or did have on those line items. Now, where this gets really tricky is that it could require companies to disclose events that they previously might not have deemed material to their operations. For example, a company might experience an outage due to a hurricane, right? They shut down their operations for a day because, or or a week or even a month because of this severe weather event. But previously, an outage like this might not have resulted in a financially material impact to the consolidated financial statements because maybe it only was, you know, a half of a percent or 1% or even less than 5% um, of the expenditures that you would normally incur because you've experienced this before, you have a process in place and, and the cost just isn't that high. However, because of this disclosure being triggered by 1% of any individual line item in the financial statements, 
Um, and that includes absolute values. So whether it is um, an increase, let's say, in costs or a decrease in costs, the proposed approach means that that event or activity would actually trigger disclosure. So alternative approaches and ways that you can think about this, um, you can refer to KPMG's comment letter where we responded to the SEC on this area. But we noted that a 1% threshold can create the potential for disclosures on activities that are immaterial and may even miss events that are more important because of the company's operations, but might not hit that 1% threshold. Because, you know, you have large components of expenses, let's say in operating expenditures, but then kind of an other expense line item that might be, you know, 50 times um, one or the other. And so it, it makes it a challenge with the bright line test. Um, and as a result, I think this dual risk can result in more noise and ultimately less substance in those disclosures. So in our comment letter, one alternative that we proposed to the bright line test was actually um, a top-down approach with the ultimate goal of connecting identified material risks in the, the front half of your 10K that you're disclosing to how they actually manifest in the financial statements themselves. So first, you would um, look at the financial statement impacts to be disclosed at a specified threshold thereby creating a direct link between the risk and the impact, and then supplement by requiring disclosure of other impacts on the financial statements, maybe without prescribing a disclosure threshold, and really applying that existing concept of financial materiality under the SEC regulations. We think that approach like this would provide better connectivity between the front part of the annual report or the 10K and the financial statements, and really overcome some of those disadvantages and challenges that I mentioned with a 1% disclosure threshold. What industries do you feel have the biggest challenge when implementing new climate rules and why? Well, I think climate-related reporting is guaranteed going to be a heavy lift across all of the industries. Um, but if I had to focus on particular industries, it's going to be a company that has complex operations, large physical footprints, um, and just a lot of data that has to be calculated because that company is generating a lot of carbon emissions um, and have to get information from a number of locations that may be located around the world. KPMG performed um, and released our global survey on sustainability reporting last year, and we analyzed the world's top 250 companies uh, by revenues, and we noted that of those 250 companies, 96% are providing some form of sustainability reporting already, and that's across all industries. We also saw in our 2022 CEO Outlook survey that 70% of US CEOs believe that ESG programs improve their financial performance. So across all industries, sustainability, ESG, climate reporting is already being done. But if we um, drill down a little bit, we'll go back to our global sustainability survey um, that did look on an industry by industry basis over reporting and um, some of the target setting that they have done on a global scale. 
And before I jump into some of these um, percentages and details, the terminology I'm going to use is the G250, which refers to the world's largest 250 companies by revenue based on the 2021 Fortune 500 ranking. And then we also looked at the N100, which refers to a worldwide sample of the top 100 companies by revenue in 58 countries, territories, and jurisdictions. So we looked at a lot of companies and their external reporting um, as a part of this study. So if we jump into some of the findings, um, we considered companies that were setting and reporting on their carbon targets. And we found that the technology, media, and telecom companies led the G250 with 89% reporting. And that was followed closely by retail with 88%. If we instead break it down and look at the N100, so the 100 largest companies in the 58 countries that we contemplated, we actually found that the automotive sector led with 89%. If we take a look at assurance and who's obtaining assurance over their reports, the technology, media, and technology sector led the N100 with 64%, having assurance over their sustainability reporting. And that was followed by automotive and then the mining sector, uh, both with 60%. And chemicals came close after that at 57%. So we um, are looking at a number of different industries that um, have reported more broadly. And then in the U.S., as well as in some of the standards that are coming up, we have an added layer of industry-specific ESG rules and standards that are out there for companies to comply with. We're also keeping a close eye on the SEC proposals around um, the asset management sector. They're trying to enhance transparency and consistency in the naming of ESG funds and um, really provide standardized disclosures on how a company or advisor's ESG strategy is being deployed. And so we're waiting for those rules to become finalized this year as well. What other elements of the proposal are you keeping a close eye on as we move toward finalization? So we already talked about the 1% threshold, and I did mention scope three emissions previously as well. Um, one thing to note around scope three emissions, even though it is a hotly debated and contested part of the rule, is that um, scope three is going to be required under the international standards, both set by the International Sustainability Standards Board, as well as the European Union's Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive. So whether the SEC ends up requiring it or not, global companies will certainly have to be reporting their scope three emissions anyway. Um, the other areas that we are keeping an eye on are around your implementation timeline. The original proposal gave an indicative timeline of when the rule would become effective so that you could also see when assurance would be required and when you would shift from limited to reasonable assurance. We have come close to you know, the timeline that they've laid out and we still don't have a final rule. So it'll be interesting to see how the SEC addresses that and what the effective date will be. And as a part of that, and one of those considerations is really thinking about interoperability with those international regulations that are out there. Um, 
we know that a lot of U.S. companies are going to be required to report under SEC, ISSB, and CSRD. So all of the standards that are out there. And there are significant differences between these standards. And so the SEC is certainly looking toward how we can reduce the reporting burden and create consistencies across all the standards and the reporting that's required. And I think that the timeline of the implementation of those other standards will also um, come into play and into effect as, as we see what the effective dates for the SEC rules will look like. What areas of ESG disclosure do you feel will be the focus of regulators after climate rules are developed? So climate rule, of course, is focused on the E and logic would say that the S and the G will get their moment as well. So we have heard that the SEC will focus on social and governance topics. Earlier this year, the SEC released their latest regulatory agenda. And in addition to a final climate rule, it includes a rule on the two investment proposals I noted earlier, as well as a new proposal on human capital management disclosure, corporate board disclosure, cybersecurity risks and related disclosures, and others. So we're also keeping an eye out for a final cyber risk governance rule this year, which had also been proposed last year. It's, of course, too early to share any specifics, but I'm sure that the climate rule is not the last we're going to hear on the ESG regulatory front in the U.S. And like I had mentioned before, the European Union regulators um, are also very focused on setting standards around social and governance issues, and they have their 10 draft standards that cover a number of environmental issues, including biodiversity and packaging waste um, as well as several social and governance topics. And to bring us home, my final question for you, Maura, is during this interim period, how can companies and their auditors prepare? It's a great question and one that we're working with a lot of clients on now. Um, we talk about no regrets moves and there are four no regrets moves that we are thinking about. The first is performing a materiality assessment. Um, one of the challenges with that is that it can be defined differently depending on which standard you're looking at, but really the goal and the concept is to identify which E, S, and G topics are most material and impactful to your organization and to your business, as well as which ones do you have the most impact on the environment and society. And so starting to go through that process and create a consistent um, taxonomy or way of speaking about these topics within your company is going to be critical and will set you up success in the longer term. The next area is to perform a gap analysis. Many companies that have been doing reporting for a long time will um, be able to take the existing proposed standards and compare what they are doing against those standards to identify any information that they need to start collecting, as well as any disclosures that they're going to need to write. In addition to that, going through the gap analysis helps you understand your process on how that data is coming together and identifying where controls might need to be put in place or more rigor needs to be added to the process as it exists. 
The third area is around identifying and defining climate-related risks and understanding how they may manifest in the current year financial statements and how much impact they might have in the future. So thinking through what the qualitative and the quantitative impact is from climate-related risks to your business. And then lastly, working on your greenhouse gas emissions. Many companies have already done an inventory of their greenhouse gas emissions, but if you haven't started, you need to start now. If you do have them, then a great place to start is getting a readiness assessment, just similar to that gap analysis that I just spoke about. And that helps you understand if you are ready for assurance by a third party. If you feel really good about your data and you're ready to go, you can start to engage on limited assurance and potentially reasonable assurance um, in, in the longer term. We're spending a lot of time in this area right now, helping clients understand not only where their gaps might be, but how they can accelerate their process. Because one of the biggest challenges I think companies are going to face is the fact that most greenhouse gas inventories are not reported until somewhere between six and eight months after their 10K goes out. But if the SEC rule passes as it's proposed, that deadline is going to have to accelerate. So that information goes out with the 10K. And I think that is a huge um, area of improvement that is going to be needed in order to meet those requirements. So I think the, the last thing that I just want to leave you with is that I know that regulations can feel overwhelming and maybe feel like it's forcing you into doing something that is frustrating or, or really just compliance driven. And what I want to leave you with is an encouragement that don't just use ESG reporting as a compliance exercise, but use it as a way to be able to transform your business. ESG has to be embedded into your business strategy to be successful and sustainable in the long term. And if you can identify those topics that are really meaningful to your business, as well as the society in which you operate, you can set targets and goals and commitments around them, take actions to make changes and ultimately record and report on the progress that you're making you're really going to drive a lot of value out of your ESG program. <music>